Today sees us come to the end of a series where we've been talking about the people of Israel entering the promised land. And we've looked at sizing up the promised land, taking possession of it. And last week, Pete was preaching on settling the land. Today's topic is restoring the land. And this is basically the message which we shouldn't needed to, to, ha- to have had included. It shouldn't have happened. There shouldn't have needed to be any restoration of the land because they'd settled. We concluded last week by the triumphant song of Deborah um, rejoicing in settling in the land and there was peace for 40 years and everything was rosy. However, what we're essentially looking at today are two things. One, what do we do when things go wrong? And just as important... What do we do when things go right? And the land needed restoring because things had gone badly wrong. We're going to read a, f- a few passages from these three chapters. They're essentially the story of one man, that is Gideon. And we'll read some passages, we'll summarize some others, and I've got a few points to highlight at the end of each of the three chapters. So quite, quite a lot to pack in, so bear with me as, as we go through. Start by the beginning of chapter 6. How things went badly wrong, like this. We read in Judges 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, that belonged to Joash, the Abia's right, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So this is the context. We've had peace for 40 years. Then Israel, not for the first time, does evil. And instead of worshipping the true God, they worship Baal, an idol. And they are in the hands of the Midianites primarily and other eastern peoples, the Amalekites and and others, forming a loose alliance for seven years. And basically it was a raiding party which happened every summer. In this country, um, for a few hundred years, there was the appearance of a group called the Border Reavers or Raiders. And basically there were a bunch of thugs, basically, raiding bands 
who would storm across the border between England and Scotland. They didn't have any association to the English or to the Scots. They resided where they felt like it, and if they felt there were rich pickings on one side of the border, they'd go for it, and they'd have a raiding season all the way through summer into early autumn. Similar sort of story with the Midianites. They came across from the less fertile pastures in, in the east, and they took basically what they wanted right throughout the, the more, most fruitful season. So the Israelites were in full retreat. Products, uh, produce was destroyed, livestock destroyed. They cried out to the Lord. And as we just read, an unnamed prophet says that this, the distress is caused by disobedience, not listening to the Lord. Gideon was called, and immediately after this calling, where he's described or referred to as a mighty warrior, doesn't probably feel like that at the time, he has enough presence of mind to realize that a sacrifice to the Lord is required. And it was a sacrifice because he produces a young goat, and livestock was scarce because of the raid, various raids for the Midianites, and the offering was received by fire. Shocked at the appearance of an angel of God, Gideon thinks he's going to die, but he's reassured he's not going to die. Then he receives his next command by the, from the Lord directly. And it goes like this. Later on in the chapter, that one. That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of his height, this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you going to try to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerob Baal that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abiezrites to follow him. He sent messages throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet him. So Gideon tears down the, the altar to Baal by night, builds a, a proper altar to the, to the Lord, and that was a risky thing to do because it was his father's altar, and he was likely to incur the wrath of his father and, and possible death as, as a result. Fortunately, Joash, his father, has one of those hang-on-a-moment moments and realizes if Baal really is the real deal, if he really is God, he could defend himself, which he couldn't, of course. God's Spirit comes on Gideon, 
summons an army, and, the, and towards the end of the chapter, Gideon still requires two further confirmations, and that's the famous bit about the fleece. He asks, puts a fleece on, on, the, on the ground overnight and says, if it, the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, I'll know that, you, that you, this is for real, that you really are co commanding me to, to, to lead an army. And then the reverse, the, the fleece is, is dry and, and the, the ground is wet. So two, two confirmations in, in successive nights. But a few things we can pick up from this first chapter, this cha first chapter of this series, of chapter 6. One is that idolatry leads to slavery. After worshipping the Lord, the people of Israel had gone after, after idols and the, and the things had not gone well as a result. Seven years of constant raiding and plunder in complete retreat. And that can happen with, with us. An idol is anything which takes the place of God, whether it's anything which consumes our attention so much that leads us away from, from God, and we can be a, sl a slave to it. And in the case of the Israelites, they were very much in submission at the mercy of these bands from the east. They cried to the Lord for help, eventually, um, but the help that, that they wanted was not forthcoming, at least not immediately. And there won't be any release until there's repentance and removal of idols, which happened overnight with Gideon knocking down the, the altar to Baal. Crying out to the Lord in times of distress is not enough. It's a start, but it's only a start. When Jonah was trying to escape from the Lord by taking the boat to Tarshish, he cried out, as did others crying out to stop the storm. God was not going to stop the storm. He'd started until the problem was dealt with, which was Jonah himself. And it seems that the people of Israel had to be brought so low before they asked for help. And we read about the unnamed prophet reminding them of what God did, bringing them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. It's interesting that the prophet does not actually give any further instructions by saying, this is what you must do. He just says, this is what our, the Lord has said in the past, and you have not listened, you haven't obeyed me. No further explanation or instructions are needed or given. All God does is refer to Israel's past and let them fill in the blanks. It should be clear what you must do, it's what you haven't done in the past. And that may be true of us. Sometimes we may be asking the Lord for a new revelation and all he's saying is, just look back. Look back to Scripture. The answers are there. And maybe if we're going through a difficult time or a dry time, the Lord will just say, I want you to take you back to a particular scripture. There won't be anything necessarily new or out of this world. It may just be a, a little reminder. So the Israelites are in real trouble with idolatry and Gideon bravely does something about it. Of course, there's an irony here. Moses was commanded by God in Deuteronomy that idolaters should be stoned. Now the people of Ophrah want to put to death someone who actually wants to remove the idols. Second point, 
on this chapter is that God can use anybody. Gideon was fearful. He wasn't the most courageous of individuals. He was hiding from the Midianites. But there are some redeeming features in Gideon. He's careful. He's cautious. He does have a vestige of faith. However weak it is, he realizes sacrifice is necessary. And he can make some, some sort of approach to the Lord. And the Lord is still accessible even when his people have gone completely away from him. Gideon wants to be sure. Hence, he actually asked for two further confirmations. And it's actually quite imaginative. A lot of people in Scripture ask for a sign. Lord, give us a sign to prove something. But Gideon actually suggests the precise sign he would like from the Lord. And it's not being, being cheeky. He's, he's seeking a confirmation so that his faith would, would, would grow stronger. He asks for a sign, not in defiance of the Lord, but saying, please encourage me, please make my faith stronger. And after that happened, he's used mightily as a military commander. It suggests in his creativity and his request for miracles that he's open to unusual military tactics, which we do see as the episode develops. It's not our perception of our lack of qualifications that matters, but God's plan. Yes, Gideon was from a lowly tribe, the tribe of Manasseh, the weakest or youngest in his family. However, in his situation, he was guilty of doing something which we all do, and we forget some of the advantages we have. It may be advantages of birth, or it may be advantages of social standing, it may be the advantages of particular abilities we have. Gideon said, seemed to be conveying the message that he was absolutely useless. But in fact, he did have quite considerable social standing. He had ten servants to call upon who were able to defy his what he was likely to be his father's will with no questions asked. God can use us in our situations and use whatever advantages we have and use us in our weakness. God is patient. He's prepared to confirm his word. Gideon asked for two extra confirmations. Even after the Spirit of God came upon him, he should have felt strong. He wants, wants more strength. He wants more confirmation. And, and if our heart is right, and we're asking for the right reason, God does provide that confirmation. In chapter 7, we move on, and God instructs Gideon twice to reduce the size of his army. The army numbered 32,000 with several of these tribes. These are mainly the northern tribes of Israel. But God says to Gideon, you're too many. If we carry on like this and you are successful, you'll take all the credit for yourself and we'll forget um, the source of your strength, which is the Lord. So God instructs Gideon, tell them to... Those who are fearful, those who are trembling, perhaps it's one great motivational speech, you lot can go home. So 22,000, do go home. So we're down to 10,000. That's the first cut. Second cut may sound a little bit more unusual. Gideon is led to a watering place, a river of some sort, commands the army to go and have a drink. And those who kneel down to drink, 
are removed, and those who uh, just bow, bow down and cup their, uh, their hands in a slightly more alert position when readiness for battle, um, they are retained. The number who got rid of was 9,700. The number retained was 300. So we're down to 300 in Gideon's reduced army. Then we read the following. With this army of 300, that during the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Pura, and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling him, a friend, his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the, that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites in, and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into our hands. So by this point, the Lord obviously realized that Gideon likes a little bit of extra confirmation, um, challenges him. So if you are fearful, I don't know if he was fearful, but he was certainly curious. Who wouldn't be? He was told, you'll find some, hear something of interest if you go down to the, the enemy camp. Gideon worships God immediately after hearing the dream and its interpretation. He leads a successful attack, crying out for the Lord and for Gideon, and the Midianites are routed. This is what happens. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Chittah, towards Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Mahola near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all the Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messages throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth, as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, so it would have been named as such afterwards, and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. So, a couple of things to be aware of from this, this chapter. One is that God does not depend on human logic. His ways are above ours. The size of the Midianite army, the Midianites and their allies, was 135,000. We know that because in chapter 8 it says that 120,000 were slain and 15,000 were put to flight. Gideon's army had been reduced to, to just 300. To say that they were numerically much weaker is an understatement. 
And if we look purely at those odds, we will say that's impossible. Now, an inferior army can beat a superior one with better tactics, perhaps a bit of help from the geog geography and weather conditions. But such odds would surely be impossible. And if we just see that in that context, it's impossible to believe. But I believe that the Lord wants us to really get a grip of what his context is, what he achieves. And if you look at it in the light of what God has done through Scripture, it's not at all surprising. We see it in the context of the Exodus, the miraculous escape of the Israelites when pursued, miraculous escape through the Red Sea. Later, we have 185,000 Assyrians slain when Jerusalem was at their mercy. The fact that the Jewish race survives today is an absolute miracle. We don't have today any Amalekites or Midianites or Hittites or any other ites you care to mention because there was no huge motivation to maintain their traditions. They intermarried and through war and famine, disease and other circumstances, they gradually disappeared. There are people with obviously Amalekite blood nowadays but not no one who would identify as such. Whereas the Jews have persisted. They have exist as a race in themselves to the day, right to, the, to this day, because it's been, been God that has sustained them. Even the survival of Israel today as a state, irrespective of what we, our views may be of the specific actions of the Israeli government, the fact that Israel is a state that exists for which God has got his purposes is an absolute miracle surrounded by hostile neighbours for the last 70 years. And God will fulfil his purposes for Israel in time. If we look at it into that context, then this amazing victory over superior numbers does make some sense. God is gracious and allows us to receive extra encouragement Gideon had been filled with the Holy Spirit, but God continues to encourage him. Unusually, when he heard the dream, that both the dreamer and the interpreter were both non-Israelites. There are plenty of dreams in Scripture, but it's rare for both the dreamer and the interpreter to be unbelievers. And God can, can use anybody. He can use words of knowledge by non-Christians, any, any source he wishes. In the dream, he uses the image of barley bread. And that is significant because barley was considered the poorest grain available. You did not make bread out of barley unless you had to, and only the poorest of the poor would do so. And in their straitened circumstances at the time, that could only refer to Israel. So the reference to barley bread was clearly the Israelite army. There's a reference to the tent as well in that the interpretation of the dream. And the tent was the, the commander's tent. So the barley bread, the Israelites, were going to attack and defeat the, the very head of the, the Midianite army. God can use the, the weakest of things, the poorest of material, the most unpromising. 
And in fact, barley bread does make a reappearance in Scripture hundreds of years later. You can probably guess. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Just a few loaves of barley bread, but they can satisfy. As a result, Gideon's response was one of worship. He worshipped the Lord, and as a result, there's a, a sea change in his approach to things. Whereas in chapter 6, you have lots of questions. Why is this happening, Lord? Or if you really have spoken to me, can you do something? Can you confirm it? If you really are God, can you just confirm it by doing something with the fleece? Instead of lots of if, there's then faith which replaces the ifs. Hebrews says in the chapter in which Gideon is mentioned as an example of faith, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Being convinced that God has already done something. Gideon responds by saying, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into our hands. Previously it was if and why, now it's the past tense. God has done it. He is convinced that it's already been achieved and, God is, and we just need to put it into practice. In the aftermath of the victory, which the Lord caused great confusion to, to come on the Midianite camp and they started killing each other, basically, or, or fleeing, Gideon calls on Ephraim, which is just a little bit to the south, uh, to cut off the retreating army. And that was shrewd tactical thinking because there were fords which, which went across the Jordan, which is the best place to cross the Jordan, near the Ephraim territory. Clear strategic thinking by Gideon. The Ephraimites were used at this latter, latter stage to cut off the, the retreating army. And as a result, they were able to capture and execute two, the, two of the Midianite commanders. So in following the Lord, it wasn't just a series of adrenaline rushes by Gideon that he had suddenly some bravery in the, in the heat of battle. It was also very clear-headed wisdom. And he's going to repeat that again in, a, in a, an awkward situation in a minute. Let's have a look at the beginning of chapter... Oh, not there. Chapter 8, just a, just a short passage. Don't know what you think of this little encounter, but uh, we'll have a look at it in a few minutes' time. Now, the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. But he answered them, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. So Gideon was able to placate the Ephraimites by praising their endeavours. He carries on pursuing two kings. That's the remains of the enemy army. He goes to a place called Sukkoth, which is at the edge of Israel. Um, that will be on the route back to the eastern territories and asked that town to provide refreshment, provide bread for his hungry army. They refused. They challenged him, saying, well, 
these leaders that you're pursuing, they're not in your hands. We'll believe that when we see it. Gideon goes on to capture the kings, executes them, and punishes the elders of the city. We read on. These, then he's addressing the two captured kings. Then he asked Ziba and Zalmunna, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? This is where it gets personal to Gideon. Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jetha, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jetha did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Ziba and Zalmunna said, kill them, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you've saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Perfect answer. Now I wish that chapter 8 finished there. Because that's the perfect answer from, from Gideon. In the moment, his absolute triumph, he's not only won a victory, he's put the army to flight and really mopped up the, the remnant. Then he says this. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was a custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. Of course they will. They're going to be glad. He's the hero. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder into, onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which is the priest's garment, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus, Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace 40 years. Jerubbaal, Gideon, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Ambimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Berith as their god and did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. The beginning of this chapter includes a fascinating passage. We talked about the fact that Gideon was not just a courageous man when it filled with God's spirit, he was also a wise man. Proverbs says that a soft answer turns away wrath. And when the Ephraimites who had been excluded from the initial skirmish, confronted him. Gideon could have answered by saying, well, God, well, God told me to leave you out until the latter stages. 
Or he could have said, well, I'm the commander, and that's what I thought was the best way to win the battle. Both of those would have been correct, but not the perfect answer. He's helped by having a nice visual aid. And if I can say this reverently in a situation of warfare, which is no laughing matter, I apologise if I don't manage to do so, but it's actually quite comical. He's got the visual aid of two heads of the Midianite kings. And when he's challenged, he's, he says, what have I done compared to you? You're the big heroes. And he uses what's probably a proverb at the time, referring to the, the fertility of the Ephraimite territory by saying the, the, the merest gleanings of, of Ephraim are much greater than, my, than the full harvest that, that my tribe can, can produce. And he's got the... He can point to the two heads, the trophies, to say, what are you complaining about? You're the absolute golden boys. You're the heroes. He's like a substitute in the cup final who's been performing well all season and suddenly the manager decides, well, we'll put you on the bench for the biggest match of the season. So just behave yourself, Simpkins, and we'll, when, when, when we need you, we'll call for you. And Simpkins folds his arms and sulks for most of the match, which isn't going very well. Manager sends him on, onto the pitch in the last few minutes and if the, well, if the enemy is tiring, he only scores the winning goal and he's the, wins the cup, he's the hero, everyone's happy. Now, perhaps in the euphoria of victory, Simpkins, the substitute, would not necessarily have confronted the manager, but maybe a few hours or days later he would have said, well, why didn't you put me on the, there, there, there at the beginning? The manager, if he's got any sense, will say, well, you're the hero, you're the golden boy. Look at your medal. Look at the, 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 the trophy. And he'll praise into the sky. Now, he knows that it was because of his astute tactical um, decision that, that brought about the victory. And it wouldn't necessarily have happened otherwise. But he gives him the, him the credit. Just as, just as Gideon gives maximum credit to the Ephraimites. Ronald Reagan, never thought I'd quote him, but he said... There's no limit to what you can accomplish if you're willing to let someone else get the credit. The historical background was that Manasseh and Ephraim were the original sons of Joseph, and they formed a half-tribe, half-tribe because the mother was Egyptian, wasn't, wasn't an Israelite. And Jacob apparently mistakenly gives the blessing on his deathbed by placing his right hand on Ephraim, which he shouldn't have done, according to tradition, because Ephraim was the younger, but he had a word from the Lord to say, it's going to be the, the younger who will, who will dominate. And that is what happened, because Ephraim became much more populous. So there would have been a bit of animosity between the two half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, which possibly surfaces later towards the end of, of this passage. Interestingly enough, Ephraim, having been, had their manliness offended by being excluded from the initial skirmish, as far as we can tell, didn't actually volunteer to carry on the pursuit. Or may, maybe we give them the benefit of the doubt by saying they understood that it was just God's will that 300 should continue. Um, but they're only too happy to go back home and make capital of their victory and name two landmarks 
after the names of the, the slain captive leaders. One was called, the alliteration seems to work in English, it's a happy coincidence. One was called Raven's Rock because the name of one of the leaders was Raven and the other was Wolf's Wine Press. The other leader was called Wolf or his name translates as Wolf. From chapter 8, with Gideon we see his persistence in seeing adventure through to the end. When things were going right, he persists. He doesn't take his hand off the plough. He could not allow the two rebel towns of Sukkoth and Peniel to be hedging their bets and secretly waiting for the return of the Midianites for protection. And he administers a quite a severe punishment, saying in advance, with confidence, when I return, then I will administer punishment. Not if I return with victory, but when, because he's has that faith that God has given him the victory. Is that being unmerciful? Well, the thing is, the two towns would have known about Gideon's earlier victory. It's impossible to, to hide 120 people fleeing eastwards much before the end of the, the harvest season, much before the end of the raiding season, so they would have known that there had been an initial victory. So their response showed not only unrepentance, but unbelief and a lack of trust in God's provision. Sukkoth and Peniel, those towns, knew they, they would suffer if they trusted in Gideon and he failed. And they weren't prepared to take that chance. They had the choice whom they should serve, but didn't trust in God. Verse 23 is the highlight of the chapter. Gideon says the right thing. God alone is king. He refuses to be made king and have a great dynasty after his name. And he seems to be giving God the glory and the praise for this victory. When Jesus had fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6, the crowd tried to make him king. His response is to withdraw in quietness and prayer to the Lord. The following day, he was required to give a very controversial sermon talking about being the bread of life, which could have been accused of being arrogant and, and, and self-seeking. But it was very, very carefully delivered and according to God's will. When we're strong, we're vulnerable. Proverbs 16, verse 2, says that all always seem clean to a man, but the Lord weighs the motives. What Gideon should have done at this stage is say, Lord, please weigh my motives. Give me a heaviness of heart if my plan is not right. And he makes a big mistake. Everything's gone right. He's achieved the victory. But instead of continuing to, to worship the Lord, to withdraw, to have a time of quiet reflection and to, to, to keep worshipping the Lord, he just can't resist having a little piece of the victory. And he asks for contributions of precious metal, precious jewels, 
from the plunder, from the victory. Now maybe we can give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he hadn't formulated his plan at that time. It sounds like maybe he was making a little tithe. Maybe he was going to make it available for the, the, the poor people. Maybe he had good motives initially or wasn't sure. But what he drifts into doing was creating an ephod, a priestly garment, and worse than that, he puts it on display in his hometown of Ophrah. Why is that a problem? It's a problem because the place where of worship, the center of worship at the time, was Shiloh, and that's where at any such garments were to be displayed at all, it should have been brought to that town, to Shiloh, not Ophrah. He keeps it in his hometown. The problem with Shiloh is that it's in Ephraim territory. Well, he's had a little bit of, uh, a bit of an argument uh, earlier. Now, maybe it was something which was whispered in his ear, voice in his head, or maybe some of his, his followers made the suggestion, but either way he seems to have listened to this. They probably said, remember that time, boss, when uh, the Ephraimite leaders came to you and they had a good moan about being le left out of the, of the action to start off with and you, you just praised them to the sky. And he probably remembered that. It says in that passage at the beginning of chapter 8 that their anger subsided at the time. I don't believe their anger subsided by saying, oh, fair enough, Gideon, you're right. I believe there was humour. I believe there was laughter when, when he, he mentioned that. And one or two of the Ephraimite leaders who didn't have quite the sense of humour probably had their nose put out of joint. Possibly at this, at this point, later on in the story, one or two of Gideon's followers are suggesting you could really wind them up. Don't put this ephod in Shiloh. Let's keep it in, our ter in Manasseh territory. Well, for whatever reason, it was clearly on show. And the effect was disastrous. Imagine a father and son conversation a few years down the road. What's that garment over there? What's that strange bit of clothing over there, Dad? Oh, that's the ephod, son. That's, that's the trophy that our local boy Gideon brought back. And you know what, son? He's not just a Manasseh boy. He's an Ophrah boy. And he's our hero. He, he won the victory. It says that the people of, Israel, of, of Manasseh prostituted themselves which is quite a strong expression, or played the harlot with this um, garment. Now, that does not mean literally that they had some grotesque sexual encounter with the, the, the garment. But in terms of their loyalty, instead of giving it totally to the Lord, they'd sacrificed it, as you, as you would, in, in performing that sort of a relationship. There was one sad further footnote. Not just it, by that instance of failing to conduct worship as, as it was required by using the wrong centre of, of worship and drawing attention to him, his own 
victory. It says that Gideon had 70-odd children, 70-odd sons, through many wives. Arguably, polygamy is not expressly forbidden in the Old Testament, although it's fairly clear it's probably not a good idea. He also had, through a mistress, through a concubine, a son called Abimelech. And that means, Abimelech means, my father, the king. So although Gideon did not want kingship for himself, it's clear from his naming of his son that that's, that's very much on his mind. And if we were to read in chapter 9, it becomes a bit of a disaster with Abimelech killing all the other sons and things go downhill from then on. So, yes, Gideon did restore the land. It was a tremendous victory, a tremendous example of faith that grew bit by bit. He worshipped God. He showed great faith. And he made the right pronouncements, but a fatal flaw at the end, which was to have consequences. And Judges does not end with chapter 8. There are many ups and downs still to come. But there are a few things which we can draw. When things go wrong, sacrifice the Lord, whether of our time, could, could be financial, but cer certainly a moment of sacrifice to him. Seeking him in stages if necessary. God does not necessarily expect us to get everything right in one go. And he will give us faith and wisdom as we do so. And when things go right, a time of withdrawal, time to be alone with, with God, giving glory to him and not allowing us to bask in the glory. If we give him the glory when things are going, going well, as well as things are going badly, then we won't have to go through the cycle of restoring the land all the time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this glorious restoration. And we do, do recognize that you do intervene and give victory even when we're at our lowest ebb. And thank you that we don't have to bask in exaggerating our weaknesses. But we can trust in you. And your love is so great that you do restore our fortunes. But Lord, also we do pray, help us to be mindful and learn the lessons that Sadly, at times, Gideon didn't learn that when things go well, we keep giving glory to you and keep being submitted to you. Please help us, Lord, in, in our daily lives and in our relationships to allow you to continue to restore and guide us. And may all glory be given to you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>